0: Greetings and welcome to our latest episode of Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. We are a community-based podcast and radio show in which people of Santa Ana, California, tell us in their own words about the music that means the most to them. I am Elizabeth Leguin, your program host and director of this project. I've been a musician since I was 10 years old, which makes over half a century now. I was trained as a classical cellist, and I'm currently a professor of musicology at UCLA. I live in Santa Ana, where I'm part of a community that practices Mexican traditional music. This project is based on my conviction that we people in the modern world need to learn to listen to one another and that music is the perfect place to begin.
1: My name is David Castaneda, music researcher here for the Si Yo Fuera Una Cancion podcast. I'm a percussionist specializing in musics from Latin America and the United States. In addition to playing these musics, I have also studied them. I recently finished my PhD dissertation in ethnomusicology, which explored the ways that musicians are listening to each other across national, cultural, and ethnic lines. I'm so happy to be a part of this project, using my training and my performance experience to bring you the stories, music, and lived experiences of those living right here in Santa Ana.
0: Today's interviewee has a lot to tell us and to tell the world. We talked for a long time and yet it seems like we barely got started. Patricia, often known as PJ by fellow organizers and community members, is a human whirlwind of ideas and projects, knowledge and observation, and yet they can drop easily into heartfelt reflection. I was inspired and stimulated by the experience of interviewing them, and I hope you will be as inspired by hearing our conversation. Welcome, Patricia. Um, I've been looking forward to interviewing you for quite a long time and finally have you online, and really, really delighted to have you with us here. And. So I generally start things out with these interviews by just asking the interviewee to say their full name and talk a little bit about what you would like our audience to know about you, what you do, who you are, and very importantly, since this is a Santa Ana focused podcast, uh, what it is that brought you to Santa Ana? Why are you here?
2: So my name is uh, Patricia Jovel Flores Razaval, or PJ for short. Um, my pronouns are she, hers, and they, them, theirs. Um, I grew up in Santana. Um, I like to say I'm born and raised in Santana, but I always feel a little um, <laughs> uh, deceitful when saying that because, you know, a lot of people in Santana are born in Fountain Valley Hospital, uh, which is the nearest hospital where you can have, like, a birth and not worry too much.
0: <laughs> I did not know that.
2: <laughs> From the moment I left the hospital, I was uh, raised in Santana. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I have loved my time, um, you know, living here, growing here, um, learning about myself and the world through Santana. Um, To, I guess to say a little bit about myself. So I grew up um, on Parton Street um, in Santana, like near Edinger and uh, Flower. I say that for people who are local, I suppose. Um, And then, you know, after that, uh, once my parents split, um, I went with uh, my mom. We lived on Townsend Street in my grandma's house. So, you know, even though I've moved around quite a bit, um, I've always been kind of centered in Santana, based in Santana, um, and really just appreciative of, I guess, like the ways that like my parents have, uh, you know, raised me with a love for this place. Um, Both of them, you know, emphasize since I was like a little kid uh, that we are who we are based on like um, who is around us, who, um, you know, grows with us, who teaches us. And just like the community that we live in, you know, like how that shapes who we are. Um, and in that same sense that like, you know, they raised me with a sense of obligation that um, we also have to return the favor, you know, to the place that raises us um,
1: mm.
2: uh, by, you know, giving back with whatever we it is that we have, whatever it is that we are given to share with the world, you know, um, I think like this, you know, the journey is just figuring out what that is and how best to find your place, right, um, in your community.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, wow, what great values to be raised with. And and it, it strikes me, how few parents take that attitude with their children? Do you think your parents are unusual in that regard?
2: My parents are very unusual in many regards. But, <laughs> 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 but um I think, uh, you know, it is a sense that I got from the rest of my family as well, my grandmother and all that. But I definitely, I'd say my parents are unique in the sense that like they're, they were activists when I was a kid. I mean, the FBI tapped our house on Parton Street when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: are kidding Um, me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, my, my mom and my dad, um, went down to Nicaragua during the, the Civil War to help out with the Sandinistas, um, and then they went to Cuba for a little bit. I think that's probably what got them tapped by the FBI was going to Cuba because uh-huh. they did so back when it wasn't allowed and all that. Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, I think that, um, they really did have this sense because of how they were raised. You know, my, my mom during like the sixties and seventies, um, you know, she like saw the, the Chicano movement, the Black Power movement. Um, back when she was a kid, there was a Black Panther party in Santana. Right. Um, and she always talked about how like um, groups like the Brown Berets would walk her and uh, my aunties to school um, to protect them from harassment from men, you know, from like white terrorism. So she really grew up with that sense of like community takes care of each other when nobody else does. Um, My dad's Chileno, and so he was, um, he went to go find his own dad in Chile when he was uh, 19, and he became a Marxist because of the Pinochet regime. And so he was uh, protesting down there against Pinochet and all that, and uh, gained a lot of like insight about like community organizing and stuff like that. Um, I think both of them, like, because of their unique experiences, raised me with those values of like, Things get done by people coming together to take action. You can't just like vote it. You can't just like wish for it. You have to actually come together and create the solutions yourself.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is quite something to grow up in and be a part of, you know, since, since your early years. So, so tell us a little bit about how you have, as you've become an adult, taken that forward into your, your livelihood and what you spend your days doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, since I was a kid, I felt like whatever I was going to do, it needed to be playing a part in making the lives of like working families, like my own, um, better. And then also like taking care of the earth and the water that sustains us, right? Mm-hmm. Um. That's something that like, you know, my mom being like of Cuyuteca heritage um, from like the Sierra in Southwest Jalisco, that's um, something that she raised us with and my grandma too Um, and my great grandma, I got to be raised with all those women. Um, And they really emphasize that like, you know, the land is what births us. And so we have to take care of her while we're here. Um, And so I think that like, as I was a kid, that was a big part of my imagination, imagining what the world could look like. And as I got older, I realized like, the only way to make that happen is by doing it ourselves, you know, and so I think I be, when I was around 18 or 19, I started taking more of an active role, you know, like I started getting involved with like union organizing. Um, I went off to school at UC Berkeley. I had to work at a cafeteria in Berkeley to pay, you know, to help pay for my tuition and stuff. And so I made friends with all the workers there in the cafeteria and um, I ended up joining the union as an organizer. So I think that there's a lot of issues with union organizing, but it's also where I gained a lot of my skills with like building a campaign, like planning an escalation. Um, I mean, doing like uh, what I call radical detective work, uh, TM Ooh. trademark, um, <laughs> 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 which is like, you know, being able to gather information and in, like often sneaky ways to build pressure on people with power. Right. Um, I, I learned that from my uncle, my uncle, um, my tio Juan, he came from El Salvador, um, after being put on a blacklist by the government down there as a organizer. Mm. And, um, he like was an organizer with the same union actually. And so he told me like, well, we, when we want information that the university isn't sharing with us, like we'll create a distraction, go into their offices and get the files. Um, and so like, you know, doing those kind of things, like I use the fact that I was working at a cafeteria to like sneak people in, to do a demonstration inside the cafeteria, um, you know, try to charm people to figure out what's going on with the university and stuff like that. Oh my
0: um, gosh. I'm, I'm almost wondering whether we should publish this part of the <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's it's all, this is in the past tense now, and you are no was, longer in Berkeley. That's your
2: limitations. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. As you know, I'm an employee at a sister university to UC Berkeley and have been for a long time. And the longer I stay there, the more unhappy I am made by the structural injustices that the university embodies. Uh, universities are... Very problematic places from the standpoint of labor justice, and I'm not sure how aware a general listenership might be of that fact. But the, yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought it up. And and I mean, what honestly, what better place to (laughs) learn organizing, you know, real real community and union organizing than Berkeley, California? (laughs)
2: Yeah, <laughs> I will say that
0: it's kind of the mothership, at least as at least as far as the United States go, and uh, that's and by no
2: um, by no work of the university, I will say it's the faculty themselves, a lot of them are actually pretty conservative, but it's really the students that make it that way, and the workers, you know, um, Berkeley has a reputation that it does because of student movements pushing against the university's uh, abusive policies. To be honest, you know,
0: that's really important. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. Um. So now today in Santa Ana how do you how do you make your living what how does this how does your professional life weave together with this um, amazing background that you bring to it
2: So right now I'm a director of Orange County Environmental Justice. Um, So we're a nonprofit here in Orange County um, dedicated to, you know, investigating and then combating environmental injustices and climate injustices Mm -hmm. across the counties. I'm someone who's very based in Santana. It's my home. It's like the community that I love. Um, But also I see so many similarities between the struggles we face there and folks in Anaheim, Garden Grove, Fullerton, Buena Park. And so I always try to make sure that like, I'm having a perspective across the region, you know? Um, yeah. We organize around, um, for example, like soil lead contamination in Santana. Um, that's one of the major campaigns that's gained us like some more notoriety in like recent years because uh, we did a study with uh, UCI Public Health uh, professors like Alana LeBron and uh, Dr. Jun Wu, um, as well as folks in the history department like Juan Manuel uh, Rubio um, and the community resilience projects at UCI. Basically what we found in that study was that uh, the majority of the residential samples were uh, far above the Cal EPA threshold for safety which is 80 parts per million of lead in the soil mm-hmm. and that threshold is at the level at which it's notably starts to affect the IQ of children. And so um we're talking about neurological damage in that sense, right? right. And um the the threshold is 80 parts per million a majority i believe were um you know approaching 400 parts per million, but there are particular neighborhoods in central Santana that had upwards of 2,000 all the way to 4,000 parts per million. And so um, that's 25 to 50 times higher than the CalEPA threshold for safety. Um, And so it's a huge issue that's actually been there generationally. It's not just lead in the paint, but lead in gasoline, um, because we've noticed that a lot of the, the most concentrated areas of soil-led pollution in Santana are around the freeways and around the major streets. That's where the majority of residents are renters, the majority of residents are low income with no college degree, majority of residents um, are from migrant families, usually Latinx families, um, and uh, the majority of residents uh, are, come from families with children. And since children are the ones that are harmed the most by lead contamination, um, that's incredibly concerning. Right. Yeah.
0: Um,
2: and so that's like one of the major projects that we do um, specifically in Santana, where we've been trying to advocate for policies to not only remediate the lead from the soil and not only to take it out from the soil, but to do so in a way that is sustainable. Right. The practice is usually that they just dig up the dirt and move it somewhere else. Um, <laughs> right. And really we want like, we use native California plants and fungi actually to try to bioremediate the soil, um, right. which is a lot more sustainable and like something that all residents can do. Um, and we're also trying to make sure that undocumented residents get access to healthcare since uh, most undocumented people aren't covered by MediCal. We want to make sure that the city puts in work to get them access to healthcare services to address the effects of lead contamination. And then we want to push for rent control and tenant protection so that they don't get priced out of the homes that just got remediated. So the landlords don't put the cost of that remediation back on the tenants. On
0: to them. Yes. That, yes. There's so many things. I, I think our listeners can probably <laughs> sense this from as, as you're talking. When you talk about environmental justice in a complex, urban community like Santana, you are talking about so many things at the same time.
2: And the thing is that lead stays in the air and the soil gets kicked up again through traffic and it gets moved across like this kind of central area of Santana. Of course. And so, of course. Yeah.
0: And the, and then the way, you know, that this this deadly stuff that's in our soil and and intermittently in our air, uh, inevitably, it seems, affects the most vulnerable populations in the city. And then that, of course, intersects with issues like rent control. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's like this huge, complex chain of factors, and they've all got to be dealt with together. It's...
2: Exactly. And I do want to just point out, like I mentioned earlier, that um, the Black Panther Party had a chapter here in Santa Ana.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and it was actually the Black Panther Party locally, but also across the country that was the first to bring attention to the issue of lead pollution and how that affects uh, communities of color um, and just youth in general. A lot of like the black veteran families that are still here, um, who were the ones that actually fought for desegregation locally in Santana back in the day, seeing how hard they worked and like how their families are really dedicated to staying in Santana's because of that work that they put in, you know, in honor of their ancestors. Like, mm. I think that it's insulting that the city still hasn't done something to remediate the lead because they've been bringing attention to this for decades. And it's something that's already affected so many generations of our children. And lead stays in the bones. If you grew up in Santana and in these areas, it's likely as bones degenerate as you get older, that lead will be released into your system again. So it's something that's not just affecting youth, but it'll affect all generations at some
0: point. Yeah. Well, I'm sure this has crossed your mind, but it will affect you. You grew up in Central Santana. Uh, it's, yeah, it's frightening. It's <laughs> crossed my mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's no joke. Let's turn our attention to a song. Let's see. I'm kind of tempted to just play your first song without actually talking about it beforehand. I think it'd be nice to bring in a little music, and, and uh, just let the, the amazing sounds of this song uh, bathe us for a little while, and then I like that, kind of uh, talk about how it connects to your ideas about where you came from.:
1: Do you'. Remember-
2: dancing over
0: here.
2: I had to get up for a second to really dance with this.
0: (laughs) That is like the most cheerful nostalgia I have ever heard. (laughs) i agree (laughs) you know i mean it's do you remember it's it's definitely looking back right but it's just so cheerful
2: yeah i mean the 21st of september is like the last day of summer right Uh, of Mm -hmm. summer i mean it's all the like fun that you try to pack in as a kid like before you have to go back to school and everything (laughs) like that
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. And and yeah, I think one reason it's so cheerful is it sounds to me like they are having a good time as they sing and play it.
2: Oh, yeah. No. Earth, Wind and Fire. That is like what I love about them. Like they sound like they're having the time of their life as they're making the music and like <laughs> you can't help but do the same, you know, like to catch off of that energy.
0: Yeah, it's totally infectious. And I got to say that the the YouTube video that goes with this recording... They're having the best time in those costumes. Oh, my God.
2: (laughs) That's what I love about music at that time. It's just like the creativity, not just with the music, but like what people were wearing, the way they were performing. Like it was all about being like as out there as you could be creating music from the future, you know, like because like we needed that right now. Uh, That's what I really love about that song. Yeah. Yeah.
0: 1978. Uh, uh, is when this song was released, so quite a while before you were born, <laughs> and uh, I was younger than you are now. Um, and but yeah, it the cheerfulness just carries it through. Tell us a bit about like why this song uh, in response to the prompt of uh, like where you come from.
2: It was a difficult choice, to be honest. Um, if I can, you know, give a shout out to the two other songs that were on the consideration list. Um, oh, please. Yeah. The other two songs. Um, one was called El Tecolote, which is um, a song It's in the style of like the Son del Sur de Jalisco. Um, that was going to be in honor of like the town that my family comes from, uh, Tecolotlán, mm. which is in the Sierra Madre Occidental, um, down in um, like South Jalisco. Um close to Colima. And, uh, you know, like my my family's culture coming from there, like all the lessons that we took from the land there, like being Cuyuteca, like that's something definitely like that I felt has a, you know, a big impact on who I am and I would consider. It. But, um, and then As by Stevie Wonder was the other choice.
0: Listeners to our show may recall episode number 13, our interview with Diana Morales, in which she talked about her Purepecha indigenous heritage. The modern Mexican state of Jalisco now includes Purepecha as well as Cuyoteca territory, which elides the fact that they are different people speaking different languages. The Cuyoteca, whose ancestral land is to the south and west in Jalisco, speak a version of Nahuatl, the language of the Aztec Empire. Tecolotlan, the pueblo of Patricia's family, means place of the owls. Here, in honor of that place and its musical heritage, is a little bit of the son jalisiense that Patricia mentions, el tecolote, that is, the owl.
2: But really, like, my mom is the person who's had, like, the most influence, I think, on who I am. <laughs> and ultimately, I chose September because yesterday was her birthday. Um, and so it, it makes me think of her as well because she was born in September and everything. Um, and that Libra energy of, uh, you know, like, being, like, in pursuit of justice, in pursuit of creating a more beautiful world, but also being able to just have a great time and enjoy yourself with the people you care about. And I think that's, like, what my mom has taught me the most in my life, Um, just how to, like, truly love, like, in the freest way. Um, I think that she definitely showed me, like, what compassion was in terms of, like, uh, the way that she showed up for me, the way that even when things are difficult in her own life, like, um, you know, for a while it was just the two of us uh you know, like uh, we shared a room in my grandma's house with like my uncle was in the room next to us, like (laughs) my great grandma down the hall, my grandparents next door, you know, (laughs) Uh, it was a packed house. um, And, you know, she was going through her own struggles, like even of just like trying to like, you know, help pay for her own part and support me and everything. But even then, like when I was going through something, she would take the time to hear me and like, like really listened to me in a way that I felt like other adults didn't, you know? Um, I think that it's very easy, like for adults to dismiss children as like not having formed thoughts or anything like that, you know, not having enough experience, but my mom never treated me like that. She always treated me like someone who had my own like perspective and like needs in the world and that I deserve to be listened to. And I think that's why, I chose her because that's, chose that song because it represents her for me and because like that's how I try to be in the world. You know, she, my mom loves Earth, Wind and Fire. Like when she was a kid here in Santana, like cruising down Bristol Street, like she used to go cruising with her cousins all the time. (laughs) Oh listen gosh. to funk music. Um Santana used to be like the funk like uh, capital, you know, of Southern California. Uh, folks would come from LA down to Santana to cruise and to like just listen to music down here. Actually, you could just be able to hear funk like rolling down the street all the time when I was a kid.
0: Wow. And so just and that's not that, that, that long ago.
2: Yeah, exactly. It kept going, you know, as part of the culture here. That's how like Santana was known. And so I love that my mom taught me that history and shared that part of herself. And so I knew, like, I'm doing this the day after her birthday. I have to do this dedication Aww. for her.
0: Yeah. Well, so a shout out to your mom. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that is just awesome in so many ways. So you said Bristol Street. That Was, was that the, the main cruising street?
2: Yeah. And, you know, that's my suspicion Suspicion of a lot of Sunpanetics is that they widened Bristol Street to crack down on, on cruising. People were always getting pulled over by the police for like cruising, especially on Sundays, you know, um, like that's when like so many people would come out in their old cars and it's just like everyone oh just rolls gosh. down the street, like playing all kinds of funk music. Um, and uh, yeah, so that I feel like that's why they widen the streets. So you don't see it as much anymore because traffic's moving a lot quicker. There's like a lot more police up and down Bristol. But you still see on Sundays people rolling around and playing funk.
0: Cruising might be called an archetypical U.S. American youth pastime since World War II. A police bulletin I read about the phenomenon describes it amusingly, but also tellingly, as unnecessary repetitive driving. The question of how and to whom this is unnecessary or necessary drives a lot of the conflict and repression that surrounds this phenomenon of hundreds, even thousands, of cars, many specially decked out at great expense to their owners, driving slowly up and down the main drag of a community, blasting music very loudly, with the drivers and passengers socializing from car to car. The nature of the music differs from decade to decade and from community to community. In the early days of cruising, disco predominated. Funk, as Patricia notes, has long been popular in Santana, so too hip-hop. What's key, it seems, is a powerful bass boosted by special subwoofers installed in the cars. The well-known 1973 film American Graffiti portrays cruising but also whitewashes it. The phenomenon is rooted in Chicano culture. Santa Ana's Bristol Street has been known for decades as a major destination for cruisers who come in from all over Southern California despite repeated repressive crackdowns by the police. It seems that it has not occurred to local authorities yet to open a community dialogue around cruising in which the point of view of the youth of color can be represented. Well, what a what a wonderful little window i i want to I want to sort of circle back uh just thinking about the song and thinking about how your mother used music like earth wind and fire and and presumably how how you too use it when we're involved in very serious, very urgent work as you clearly are, the importance of keeping our hearts open and the way music can help us do this. How music supports, and I'm I'm talking now more generally. I mean, yes, earth, wind and fire, definitely. But th- they're just one example, I think. How music supports activist work. Uh, what thoughts do you have about that?
2: Well, you know, to think about that, like I think about how You know, music is, like, one of the first, like, human art forms, right? Um, Because, like, we all have a beat already inside of us with our heart, you know? And so, like, that is, like, the first thing that we hear when we're in our uh, parents' womb and all that is, like, um, Mm -hmm. their heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to match it with our own. And that's, like, the first kind of harmony right there. Um, And so I think about that in terms of, as activists, like, a lot of times what we're trying to do is build the communities that we didn't get to have, you know, in a lot of ways, right? Like build like the lives that, you know, we were denied by oppression, right? And try to do that for the people that come after us. Mm. Um, And hopefully to fight for something better. I think that music in that way brings us back home. Um, It gives us like that, keeps us with that momentum of being able to like push forward with that same beat in our heart. You know, when we're out on a march, like you usually have someone like, uh, you know, leading a chant, like maybe someone with a drum standing or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And those kind of things remind us of like why we're in this is like for that heartbeat and for the heartbeats of the people around us. Right. Like what keeps us alive and what keeps us going is the fact that we're taking care of each other. And that's what activism is. Um it's like showing love for each other.
0: <laughs> wow. Patricia, that is, I just, it's so beautiful Thank the you. way
2: you Yeah, I think like, oh and gosh. just in general, I think like with Earth, Wind & Fire in the, particular, um, I will say like, with all of that, like we need to take time to celebrate and to have joy. When I ask myself, you know, in my most depressed times, like, what, like, would make my ancestors the happiest right now? What would make them the most proud of me? What would they want me to be able to freely do right now? And that's dance, you know? Things like ghost dance in the United States, um, which was like an indigenous movement um, to be able to remove like co- colonization from the land, right? And that was criminalized because people are genuinely afraid of just the ancient power of music, the ancient power of dance to actually have some magic with it to create a change. And um, I think that, like, when we're really able to just give ourselves to the rhythm, like, lose thought and, like, worry and just, like, be as we're supposed to be, I think, like, that's one of the most beautiful and healing moments. And I think that we need it both as a momentum for our movements, but also as a time to, like, heal and celebrate before we keep
0: going. That's one of those cool, mysterious things that music will do for us. And gosh, yeah, I mean, what a great choice because Earth, Wind & Fire – they, I feel like so much of their music does precisely that. Well, thank you for that choice, and I'm actually I'm going to pivot us right away, actually, to your second song um, because I think there's there's really strong connections, but um, obviously it's a really super different kind of music. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it just briefly before we listen to it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the second cho- choice, your second choice of a song, um, the, the one that, in some way, for you, points toward your hopes for the future.
2: Right. So this song we're going to listen to is uh, Robin Hood Theory by Gangstar. Um, and so Gangstar is an amazing group. They're a classic hip-hop group uh, from like the late 80s to the 90s. Um, and it consists of uh, two people, uh, Guru, who's the MC, the, uh, the rapper, and um the DJ is DJ Premier. They're a power team, like, right there. Um, and I have found a lot of healing in their music, especially, like, songs like Moment of Truth. Um, mm-hmm. But this song in particular really, I feel like, speaks to, like, uh, the way that I would want to show up for, like, youth in my community in particular. Um, and thinking about, like, all of the ways that, like, our families, you know, um, and, you know, our ancestors before us have been robbed of the chance to have the livelihoods we need um, and given our labor um, to people who often do not compensate us for one, but also just like use it for our own destruction. Also the image of like criminalization, right? Um, of like casting our communities as like, um, as thieves and stuff like that and flips it on its head and says like, actually, no, we're taking what's owed to us. And so, yeah, that's, that's I guess, what I'd want to say about this song.
0: Let's listen to it. Now that we're getting somewhere, you know we got to give back For the youth is the
1: future, no doubt that's right and exact Squeeze the juice out of all the suckers with power and pour some back out So as to water the flowers, this world is ours That's why the demons are leery. it's our inheritance This is my Robin Hood theory
0: Robin Hood theory
1: I seek sun, deceive none, for each one must teach one At least one must... Wow!
0: So much to mm-hmm. talk about here, yeah?
2: Yeah, <laughs> and definitely very explicitly on point.
0: <laughs> I was really saddened to learn that Guru died. That, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he says, I'm sent to be leading the army of the century. Mention me and snakes will retreat eventually. But he's not here anymore, and I was really sad to learn that. It's an amazing uh if you will, a, a political theory that he's putting forth here. And and one of the things that really, really grabs me about this and and a lot of his music, he never sounds like he's in a hurry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and,
0: you know, and it's really easy to understand what he's saying. Uh, yeah, he that.
2: calls his style the monotone.
0: <laughs> well, it's it's not the monotone. I just think his diction is really good, you know? the way in which his his rhyming his his speaking his rapping just it comes into our ears very easily but this amazing clarity of expression and powerful vocal presence and and I I feel like there's a there's a lineage going on here you can hear it
2: absolutely and you know I will say like With MCs, everyone takes a different approach to these things. You know, like some people, um, come with like a message, right? Other times lyrics are just about like musicality. Like actually, you know, with the last song, September in an interview with, like, one of the singers from Earth, Wind & Fire, um, he was talking about, well, everyone has their interpretations of why I said the 21st night of September. But mm-hmm. actually, we tried a bunch of dates, and that was the only one that sounded good with the music. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: and so, you know, a lot of it sometimes I feel like, uh, with different MCs, sometimes it's about, like, just you know, being able to rap and use your words in a way that like lend its own instrument, even if it's not about the particular word choice. Other folks is just about having like clever rhymes. I think Guru in particular, um, you know, like among like a lot of other, like conscious rappers at the time was about like the poeticism and the message that he was trying to share. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that comes a lot, you know, with like the influence of like the five percenter, uh, nation out there. Um, Mm. and, uh, how that was a big movement in New York at the time, like, um, you know, about like recognizing like the power of the black community, you know, like to, um, in shaping the world and like in their own ability to like create their own justice in this world. You know, when they have that opening line, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, old schoolism, or new schoolism, like, <laughs> it's talking about, like, everyone was coming at the time, like, with a different philosophy. And often, you know, I see this in Santana as well. Like, um, there'll be debates about, like, different philosophies of organizing. You know, like, are you a communist? Are you anarchist? Are you a liberal? Are you, like, you know, all these different, like, approaches to organizing. Um, and I've never really, like ascribe to any label in particular in that way, because, um, you know, I agree with what the song says, like, no matter what we say our religion is, if we're not schooling the youth with wisdom, then the sins of the father will visit the children. And I love that message, you know, because it's just about, like, what are you actually teaching in terms of, like, the values for, like, each other and for human life, right? Like, what are we actually teaching about, like, the ways that we can, you know, get justice, like, to provide what we need for our communities to actually thrive in this world? actually like taking action directly, you know? Yes, yes. Am uh, advocating for that?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, there's a kind of implicit question in there that it's like, okay, what if you got to show for your spirituality? hmm You know, what is it doing here in the world for the people that need things?
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, you know, which is a pretty challenging question.
1: Gangstar, the American hip-hop group, comprising of DJ Premier and MC Guru, enjoy the height of its popularity from 1989 to 2003. They are considered one of the best MC and producer duos in hip-hop history. Central to their music, as is the case with much of hip-hop, there are unseen influences of the 5%. As rapper RZA says, about 80% of hip-hop comes from the 5%. In a lot of ways, hip-hop is the 5%. I thought it would be a good time to explain this important part of hip-hop history because it reflects the complicated history of race relations here in the United States and its connection with popular music. The 5% can be defined as a black nationalist movement started in 1964 by Clarence 13X, also known as Allah the Father. The main idea is that 10% of the population know the truth of existence, and they work to keep the other 85% of the population from this truth. The remaining 5% are those who work to dismantle the oppressive relationship between the 10 and the 85 percent. Clarence teaches a set of principles, supreme mathematics and supreme alphabet, as a way to understand mankind's relationship with the universe. He also teaches that the first peoples of earth were Africans and therefore are responsible for civilization as we know it. While the 5 percent utilizes terminology and concepts of Islamic teachings, it is not ideologically or religiously aligned with the Islamic religion. It is closer to a culture than a religion. As explained by Christian Baker, the common thread of hip-hop in the 70s and 80s was the Islamic Black nationalist rhetoric and infusion from the Nation of Islam and the 5% Nation specifically. Hip-hop pioneer Africa Bambata connected with the Nation of Islam and harnessed that influence in creating the Zulu Nation, to spread socially and politically conscious ideas and ideals. It would be safe to say that these influences have stayed with the music even to the present day. For more information, check out our references on the Sillo Fuera Una Canción website to read these articles for yourself. Whether or not these doctrines hold merit is for you, the listener and consumer of the arts, to decide. Movements like The 5% provide a perspective into the cultural and societal struggles that individuals are living through in the second half of the 20th century here, In the United States, there are elements of reclamation, of self-defense, and of resilience in the rhetoric of the 5%. How effective they have been in their aim of deepening our understanding of our relationship with the universe and between one another remains open to interpretation.
0: One of the things that this got me thinking about was that he does not sound angry, I don't think ever in in this whole song. Um, but there is anger coded into his words, very deep anger and and justified anger. And that got me thinking about the the juncture between anger and spirituality. Um, So I'm going to talk for just one minute here about where I'm coming from, which is upper middle class white girl raised in Portland, Oregon, one of the whitest cities in the United States. In the world I come from, Anger and spirituality are almost divorced from one another. I think a lot Mm. of people who look like me and have a demographic like mine, spirituality is actually a place to uh, escape from really uncomfortable emotions like anger. Mm. And so I'm, I'm just so intrigued by this song. The anger that it encodes, but in a certain sense does not express. And... I just wonder what you think about all of that. (laughs) What what, what your response might be to to kind of my perspective on the song.
2: Absolutely. So I feel like, for one, stylistically, like the way that Guru does it. So he describes his like voice as like the monotone or the drone. I agree. It's not monotone, but like what I think that like he tries to do with his lyrical style is like he keeps the same tone evenly. So you really have to pay attention to his words and what the words evoke. You know, Ah, Um, and like what emotions you get from those. You know. And so it really, like, takes you on this ride um, that, like, is completely guided by the poeticism of the lyrics. And so um, I think that that's, like, definitely one of the tools that he uses to, like, get people to think through his songs. Um, but definitely, I think that this song is about that unity. And I think that, you know, like, from my own experience, um, you know, like, I can say that, like, definitely spirituality is a source of refuge, like, of uh, comfort when you experience those feelings of anger about like what we're going through, like, which you can't help but experience. Like I was a very angry kid to be honest, even though I was very, I feel I was very loving and like tried to be as carefree as possible. But I was Mm -hmm. upset because there's so much pain going on around me. You know, like my, my family, you know, was harassed by like white supremacist gangs when I was a kid. And like there, Mm -hmm. there was my grandparents, you know, constantly working and, Uh, cleaning homes, you know, like, uh, and uh, thinking about, like, all the health problems that they would get from all this work, I felt very helpless as a child. And like, helplessness leads to anger in a lot of ways, right? Because it's a frustration. Um,
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that, like, spirituality could only really be a refuge to me when it was also coupled with action. I think in my own spirituality now, it is a source of immense beauty and peace for me to be able to recognize, like, how, you know, countless generations of the people before me have created the life that I have now and how interrelated we are with the entire world around us. That is my spirituality. It's about how can we create that heaven on earth for all of us now? You know, how can we do that work of creating justice and um, to care for the world that we've been granted and um, to care for the people that we've been blessed to be around? Um, that is the obligation of spirituality, in my opinion, is like if we have these values, if we have these lessons, then like we need to put that into action every day. And what we're experiencing right now is a hell instead of a heaven, you know? Um, the world that we live yeah. in that's been created by colonization is one that goes against every value of, of life. Um, it is a system of death and. If we want to rectify that, if we want to restore the relationships between all forms of life here, then we need to take on that spiritual undertaking of confronting things directly, taking action against these systems and restoring the relationships here. Um, it's a spiritual obligation. It's an obligation among people. Um, and I think that all of those are connected when you're in, in this place of knowing that the oppression of your people is at the center of that destruction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm just taking a minute here to absorb all of that. It there's something very damaged and damaging, I think, about the idea that the realm of the spiritual is somehow fundamentally separate from everyday realms. Mm. Um, you know, and the incarceration of ideas of divinity and 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 spirit. In special buildings built just for them. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, temples are are a lot of things, but if if the if the spirit can't come out of the temple and kind of just inhabit our daily life, um, you know, when we're mopping the floor, or picking tomatoes, or marching for justice or whatever it may be. Um mm-hmm. then something's something has broken it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, and you know just to circle back around to this amazing song. Um it's not broken in the song. The, you know, the Yeah. forward march of this beat and the forward march of his rapping is it's like very very integrated. What he's saying needs to happen and what he's saying he's going to be doing about it and what he is exhorting us to do about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, like prayer isn't just what you do, like you were saying, like in a temple or a church prayer isn't just when you're petitioning for help. Right. Um, In your own privacy, Mm -hmm. prayer is in our hands and in our feet. Um, prayers in our action and in our words right like when you know he's busting down doors like creating social social change and defending the poor that's a form of prayer right and um you know I think that all of the things that we do to show up like that are prayer because they're trying they are a petition to create a different life
0: yeah yeah and hence of course uh taking it back to earth wind and fire the importance of dancing Mm -hmm. because that's your hands and feet too and it's uh, just taking that prayer out a little farther. Um,
2: a lot of the elders I work with, you know, like, um, and a lot of the healing I've done for my own self, you know, um, elders in my family, like Indigenous elders that I've worked with, have talked about how, like, dancing is, like, you know, you're sending energy down to the earth to your feet, right? Um, mm. And that is like one of the most beautiful forms of prayer. Um, it's something that all animals do in their own way. Um, And I think that, like, yeah, definitely that's a huge part of it. And I can say for sure that, like, my family has raised me to know that dancing is incredibly important. My grandpa was, like, known... In Tegucatlan, where we're from. And then when he came here, like uh, all the da- dance halls across Santana would wait for him because he was a really good, like at, with the zapateado. Like he can move his feet oh so my quickly.
0: Gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish I could have seen him.
2: Yeah, me too, back in that day. He did still did dance when he was older, but
0: <laughs> I would have yeah, loved yeah. to see his
2: swift movements back then, you know?
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Oh, there are a few things more beautiful and moving actually than seeing. A very elderly person who in their day was a very good dancer and the way i mean it's all about like the economy of their movements right because mm-hmm. they probably don't have as much well they certainly don't have as much energy or uh, you know as much flexibility in the joints and stuff but but the body still remembers like mm-hmm. this is how it goes and you can see that it's so beautiful
2: Absolutely. I love my yeah. grandma for that reason. She like, she'll, uh, if she has music playing, she'll grab one of us and start dancing with us, which I love. <laughs> She's also a really great dancer since she was a kid, you know. Uh, that's really what my grandparents did. They like every year when there was a festivity in the, in, uh, Tecolotlan. Um, As much as they could, when they had the money, they would go back and they would dance for like they told me up to like four days straight before they had to take a nap.
0: <laughs> I've heard stories like this. Yeah, it's a thing.
2: And my mom does too here for her own music, you know, so I think my mom carries that tradition forward with earth, wind and fire, you know, in her own way. Like she'll dance for days <laughs> straight. And I'm amazed because she can still do that. My mom, I, uh Okay, I can't say on air what how old she turned yesterday, but she doesn't look anything like her age, and she dances with more energy than I can at my age right now. so
0: <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, that's awesome, my goodness. all right well I'm uh, let's let's wrap things up a little bit and i i I'm thinking I want to wrap them up with you by asking just one more kind of complicated but I think very important question that that has to do with this amazing intersection of joyousness and activism that you inhabit. And this would really just have to do for those of us who are embedded in institutions. How shall I say this? The corruption and the brokenness that comes, as, as you alluded to earlier, through the fact that we're all Living with the consequences of colonialism. Mm-hmm. It is structurally built into those institutions, every single one of them, I would say, and at least certainly the big ones like my university, mm-hmm. like UC Berkeley that we were talking about earlier. <laughs> it's not an option for most of us to simply break with those in- institutions in order to uh, find our own path. It would, it would harm us economically. It could harm us in other ways. And what, what are your thoughts, just in closing, about how we go on working with the flawed systems we have inherited while holding to the radical ideals that, that we might have about how we could really change things, mm-hmm. and yet... We're more or less obliged, many of us anyway, to stay within existing systems that embody values that we may not completely share. How do we work that one through? Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: I do. Um, (laughs) So I will say that, like, for one, I never expect any job that I have, like, within the system, to lead to liberation in any way for my people. I really appreciate the ways that I've been working with OCEJ to, like, investigate. Environmental justice issues. Give those tools to community members, but I stay active in grassroots uh, organizing work that's not paid because I define myself most by the work that I don't get paid for. Um, so groups like Colectivo mm-hmm. to Nancy, um where we work together to like uh, work with day laborers and domestic workers to fight wage theft um, and build like that underground worker economies uh, organizing power right. Um, and then with groups mm-hmm. like Protect Puvungna, uh, working with our Kachma indigenous peoples here to defend uh, ancestral villages and sacred sites. Um, that's the work I define myself by the most um, because I feel like we're allowed to imagine new worlds in a different way. And so I think that's it's important to have something outside of your job that allows you to think differently, to imagine something beyond the world that we're forced to engage with every day. And I think that, A big part of that also is recognizing what you bring to the table. You know, like if it's, uh, you know, you're a coder and you know really well like how to create websites, how to spread information on social media, you know, everyone has a talent that they bring to the table and finding a way to work that in to subverting the systems that are oppressing people. Because what I always think about is that There are those of us, like, like myself, you know, being someone, like, who was born in this country, who has a college degree, that are allowed to access certain, like, positions within institutions, right? But Mm -hmm. there is then another part of our community that has no ability to access that. It could be through immigration status. It can be through race, because job discrimination is a huge factor. It could be mental health issues or, um, disabilities, right? That prevent us from working within the capitalist system at a 40-hour work week. There will always be a group of people who is not allowed to access these institutions. And those are the people that I want to fight for. The people who, like my brother who is incarcerated, the people who are ho- houseless, you know, like folks who have addictions and mental health issues. Like those are the people who will constantly barred by a system that doesn't value them. And those who are the people who, therefore, we need to fight the hardest for because they have the solutions. If we fight for the people who are most vulnerable... Then we'll be serving all of the rest of the people within this world because you know all of us have needs that fit in with that too. So I think that recognizing that is what keeps me fighting to use whatever talent I have, whatever information I have to contribute to that and subvert even as I operate within. So be a spy. Be, <laughs> be a you know, like a, <laughs> an informant and like <laughs> use whatever you can. And throw it towards the people that need it the most, you know? I think that's what I tell folks. Wow.
0: Well, that is a great message for us to sort of wrap up with and I'm not going to talk too much more because I want that message to resonate out past the end of this interview be a spy <laughs> subversion my mother my mother used to say subversion through friendliness
2: <laughs> you know I've had to practice that a few times <laughs> uh-huh. I can shout and uh-huh. I can be friendly and <laughs> both are helpful
0: <laughs> it is true it is true <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Patricia. I, just a beautiful, beautiful interview and so much wisdom from such a young heart. I I predict great things for you. And I am going to be proud and happy to be in your orbit for as long as possible. Thank you.
2: That means a lot.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. And I'm going to wrap things up here. Patricia mentioned so many things of interest that we were not able to delve into in her interview. The brown berets, the little-known role of the Black Panther Party in developing public health policy in the United States, the way lead-poisoned soil correlates with resource-poor communities, the importance of subversion and some useful tips and tricks about how to practice it, And perhaps most centrally, the ways in which the social, musical, spiritual, and political elements of life weave and braid themselves together inextricably. We've provided some links for further reading and exploration in our research bibliography for this episode, as with all of our episodes, and we hope you'll be able to follow some of the pathways there that we didn't have time to follow today. Would you like to know more? On our website at Cofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Si Yo Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture, currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Cancion, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción Sonarían por las calles Las montañas y los valles Mi orgullo y mi pasión ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una onda, soy una onda Una vibración que ronda por Unidad más sonda